Are we really commanded to be obedient to our husband in all things? Are there ever exceptions? Why does it matter anyway? Why can't I just do what I decide for myself is right? Um, inevitably, as soon as I bring up Ephesians chapter 5, the deflections start rolling in. Uh, and I get it because I, I've been there. I shared some of this in, in the last episode. My husband and I each had serious struggles with serious sins. We're both well aware of how our individual sins hurt the other person. Um, and I reached a point where for a while I had zero respect for my husband and he knew it. And it was incredibly painful. Um, it was a painful time for both of us. The loneliness and the misery and the raging ugliness of that time is something that I praise God every day that we never have to go back to. But I haven't forgotten the anguish, not for a split second. And if you're in that place right now where your husband is seriously struggling with something that makes it difficult for you to reach for respect, I entreat you to cling fast to your faith, which commands your respect for your husband, no matter how far he falls. If you can't trust Christ and his teachings, to whom else will you go? And what will it cost you to be faithful? I mean, it'll it'll cost you your pride, your wrath, your envy. It will cost you nothing more or less than everything and everyone that you will be infinitely happier living without. And that may be hard to believe, and I found it hard to believe, I understand, but it's not my promise, it's Christ's. And I entreat you to cling to that promise. So honestly, I'm quite glad uh, to have this opportunity to address some very common misunderstandings about what the church teaches with regards to obedience, respect, and the universal call to holiness. It's a good thing to jump on the opportunity to clarify these things now because not having the correct understanding will prove to be a significant obstacle down the road. The earlier in a marriage that the church's teachings are understood and wholly adhered to, the happier and holier a marriage will be. So here's a summary of deflections that I've received. And bear in mind, I have absolutely been guilty of harboring every single one of these deflections in my heart. I'm not for a split second dismissing whatever anguish it is that you're going through that these deflections stem from, but they do demand a response because we cannot afford to harbor these objections in our hearts. So for the salvation of souls, let's move forward. Here's a summary uh, given in five statements. My husband is completely failing to lay down his life for me. It's impossible to respect a man who does the things my husband does. My husband is not the leader in our home when it comes to the faith. When my husband is wrong, I follow Christ and my conscience. And finally, I'm not expected to be obedient to a man who orders me to do things which are contrary to the faith. Now, I want to address these actually in reverse order. I'm a little nitpicky about this claim that there are men who are ordering their wives to do things that are contrary to the gospel. 
If a man has not used explicit language, as in I command or I forbid, and they have not exercised um, physical means to force a woman into something, then to say that they have ordered their wife to do something evil is a very dangerous statement to make, dangerous to the soul of the wife making such a claim. I have yet to meet a wife whose husband has actually used this explicit language. Um, when I encounter this in conversation and start to prod, I get all sorts of excuses, which in the end basically amount to, well, he doesn't need to say that explicitly. I know that's what he wants. It may very well be that your husband wants a certain something which is not the best for you or for him or for your entire family, but to say that he has ordered something objectively evil when he hasn't is potentially committing the sin of calumny. If you don't know what that is, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2477 which states that the person is guilty of calumny if they, quote, by remarks contrary to the truth, harms the reputation of others, and gives occasion for false judgments concerning them, end quote. So ladies, just for the sake of your own soul, don't tell other women or anyone that your husband is ordering you to do things when he has not used explicit language or physical force to that effect. If you're making this statement based on your own interpretation or best guess of his intentions or feelings or whatever, in the absence of explicit language or action, there's simply not enough there to make such a statement, which makes your husband out to be an objectively cruel person. Because that's what somebody is. If they have the authority to tell you to do something, and they tell you to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, that makes them an objectively cruel person. So I would caution you against making such a statement about your husband. With that said, if you are in a situation where your husband is explicitly ordering you or physically forcing you to do something which is sinful, please talk to a priest. First of all, because it's good for a priest to know, especially the one that married you or did your precana, but secondly, and more importantly, if you are in a situation where either you or your kids are in objective physical danger from your husband, the church fully supports physical separation of spouses. No one in their right mind advocates for any woman staying in a physically abusive situation. And certainly the church does not. And thirdly, because no authority has the authority to order you to sin. If someone is in a place of legitimate authority, an authority which is recognized by the church as God-given, then that person is certainly never permitted to order what is against Christ and his church. So if what is ordered is objectively sinful, that is, that the church has used explicit language to condemn that action, then certainly there is no question about it. You are not obliged to sin ever under any circumstances. So again, talking to a priest so that your situation is understood should you need to take further action down the road. 
And also so that you are able to say, I talked to a priest about it and he said this was sinful. I cannot do it. And having that assurance that the church is behind you in what could potentially turn out to be a tumultuous situation following. With that said, um, that's not the reality for the overwhelming majority of my audience. So I'm not going to spend time attempting to treat that sort of minority situation here. If you are in that situation, please do talk to a trusted priest. So for everyone else listening, assuming that you are not in a physically dangerous situation, or being ordered to do things which are explicitly condemned by the church as sinful, as intrinsically evil in nature. The question is, are you explicitly commanded to be obedient to your husband in all things? And the answer is yes, even when he is wrong. Because your husband can be objectively wrong about something, without that something being objectively sinful. So practical examples might be um, he, he decides that you need to step away from a volunteer role that you're currently holding because it takes you away from the family too much. And you don't agree and it doesn't sit well in your conscience that you're leaving your fellow volunteers in a lurch. But you stepping out of that role is not sinful. He might be wrong, but what he is deciding for the family is not sinful or uh, a disciplinary action that he has decided on for a child is more severe than what you would have done maybe he decided to pull them out of their favorite sports activity uh, permanently again doesn't sit well with your conscience you don't agree but what he's doing is not sinful it might be wrong it's not sinful and therefore when your husband even if your husband is wrong, if it's not sinful, you are obliged to obey. Following Christ and your conscience should strengthen your vow of obedience, not challenge or rupture it. Is this based only on Ephesians 5 and my personal attempts at exegesis? No. The church has clarified and reiterated this teaching multiple times, and I'm going to be reading directly from three of those sources now. So the first is an excerpt from an encyclical by Pope Leo XIII on Christian marriage. This is paragraph 11. Quote, The mutual duties of husband and wife have been defined and their several rights accurately established. They are bound, namely, to have such feelings for one another as to cherish always very great mutual love, to be ever faithful to their marriage vow, and to give one another an unfailing and unselfish help. The husband is the chief of the family and the head of the wife. The woman, because she is flesh of his flesh, and bone of his bone must be subject to her husband and obey him, not indeed as a servant, but as a companion, so that her obedience shall be wanting in neither honor nor dignity. Since the husband represents Christ, and since the wife represents the church, 
Let there always be, both in him who commands and in her who obeys, a heaven-born love guiding both in their respective duties. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let wives be to their husbands in all things. End quote. Then from another encyclical, this one by Pope Pius XI, again on Christian marriage, from paragraph 74, quote, The same false teachers who try to dim the luster of conjugal faith and purity do not scruple to do away with the honorable and trusting obedience which the woman owes to the man. Many of them go further and assert that such a subjection of one party to the other is unworthy of human dignity, that the rights of husband and wife are equal, wherefore they boldly proclaim the emancipation of woman has been or ought to be effected. End quote. And then the whole of paragraph 75 reads, quote, This, however, is not the true emancipation of woman nor the, that rational and exalted liberty which belongs to the noble office of a Christian woman and wife. It is rather the debasing of the womanly character and the dignity of motherhood, and indeed of the whole family, as a result of which the husband suffers the loss of his wife, the children of their mother, and the home and the whole family of an ever-watchful guardian. More than this, this false liberty and unnatural equality with the husband is to the detriment of the woman herself. For if the woman descends from her truly regal throne to which she has been raised within the walls of the home by means of the gospel, she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, if not in appearance, certainly in reality and become as amongst the pagans, the mere instruments of man." End quote. And finally, the whole of paragraph 76, quote, This equality of rights, which is so much exaggerated and distorted, must indeed be recognized in those rights which belong to the dignity of the human soul, and which are proper to the marriage contract, and inseparably inseparably bound up with wedlock. In such things, undoubtedly, both parties enjoy the same rights and are bound by the same obligations. In other things, there must be a certain inequality and due accommodation, which is demanded by the good of the family and the right ordering and unity and stability of home life." End quote. And finally, from Pope Pius Twelfth, in an address to newlyweds on the authority of husband over wife, from paragraph two, quote, Every family is a living society. Every well-ordered society requires a head. All authority in a head comes from God. Therefore, even the family you founded has a head clothed by God, with authority over the woman given to him as a helpmate 
to establish its first nucleus, and then over the children, who with the Lord's blessing will come to enlarge and gladden it like saplings around the trunk of an olive tree. End quote. Paragraph three continues, quote, Yes, the authority of the head of the family comes from God. End quote. And then later in the same paragraph three, quote, Dear Christian wives and mothers, never allow yourself to yield to the desire to usurp the scepter of the family. End quote. Then from paragraph 11, things that we spoke at length about in episode 2, quote, Women exert great power over men. Remember that Eve, after she was seduced by the serpent, gave the forbidden fruit to Adam, and Adam ate it. End quote. From, from paragraph 13, quote, The authority of the head and the submission of the wife can without losing anything, be transformed by the power of love, a love which imitates the bond which unites Christ to his church. Constancy of command and respectful obedience can and must, in an active and mutual love, achieve selflessness and a generous reciprocal gift of each other. From this, peace in the home arises and is consolidated. End quote. From paragraph 14, a reiteration, quote, your husbands have been clothed with authority, end quote. And from paragraph 15, addressing wives specifically and directly, Pope Pius XII says, quote, do not merely accept or submit to the authority of your husband under which God has placed you in the orderly operation of nature and grace, you should love it willingly and sincerely with the same respectful love you have for our Lord's authority. The source of all true power of leadership. We know very well how the concept of equality, competition in studies, at school, in sciences, in sports and games, arouse a sense of pride in many feminine hearts, and perhaps your hidden sensitivity as modern, independent young women will find it difficult to accept the dependence of home life. Many around you will claim that this is unjust. They will urge you to assume an even more independent role for yourself, insisting that you are absolutely equal to your husband, indeed, in many respects his superior. Do not become another Eve, allowing yourself to be diverted by these insidious, tempting, and deceitful ideas from the only path that can lead you to true happiness here on earth. End quote. One final note here before we move on to addressing the next objection. I think that we as wives need to work hard to better appreciate the weight of what it means to be the head of the family. Instead of seeing it as an oppression, I find it very freeing because when I consider that my husband will answer to God for every single decision that he makes on behalf of our family, I, I don't envy him 
that responsibility at all. Because it doesn't matter how much help he gets making a decision from me or from a financial counselor or from his dad or other people that he trusts. When my husband makes a decision, God expects him to own that decision. And we see that in Genesis where it didn't matter that Eve was the one who basically pushed her husband towards a bad decision. From God's point of view, Adam is still fully expected to own his decision as head of the family to take bad counsel from his wife. And far from relieving Adam of any responsibility as punishment for his failing, Adam's responsibility becomes even heavier. God makes it clear he still has to lead the family. Now with a wife who is tempted at every turn to blame him for going along with her, to question him contemptuously, with sons who will be constantly tempted to defy him. God does not remove responsibility as a punishment for faithlessness, because to do so is to disrespect Adam's free will. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, quote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap, end quote. And what a woman sows, she also reaps. Now Eve suffers not just sexual objectification by the man who is supposed to cherish her as his own flesh, but her husband's doubts as to her intentions and her character, her husband's distrust and caution in his interactions with her. I'm not downplaying the sexual objectification part, but if you think that that's the biggest problem, how can you even begin to address that specifically? If your husband is afraid of letting you into the deepest places of his heart, into his dreams, into his fears, ladies, if your husband does not see you as a safe space to lay bare his insecurities and his anguish, how can he even begin to stop objectifying you or other women for that matter? For Eve to reap the consequences of being objectified by her husband is a just punishment for treating his headship with disdain. And frankly, that remains true for each of us. If you want your husband to see you as a whole person, you have to give him in the depths of your heart and soul a soft place to land where he will be cherished and respected and trusted and obeyed regardless of his failings. Also from that same address from Pope Pius the um, 12th regarding the objection that a husband is failing to lead the family in the faith. Again, he's human, he will fail, but that doesn't nullify your vow of obedience. So this is from paragraph 15, again from the address to newlyweds by Pope Pius XII. He says, quote, Take the example of St. Joseph. Before him he saw the, bless- the most blessed Virgin Mary, who was better, holier, more sublime than he. A sovereign respect caused him to venerate her as queen of angels and men, the mother of his God. And yet, he remained and acted in his post as head of the Holy Family. End quote. In the Holy Family, Mary was objectively better than her husband. 
you might very well be stronger in your faith. You might be more consistent in demonstrating it. But none of that changes the fact that your husband's headship is given to him by God and that you are forbidden on pain of hell from usurping that role. We will talk more about this because this is a very common objection from women and honestly a common objective failure among men. So we will return to the subject from a what do I do if I'm in this situation angle um, and really flesh that out with action items. But it does demand its own half hour to address well. So for the purpose of this episode, we're going to move forward. Do stay tuned because I don't, I don't mean to gloss over this serious and common objection. One thing that I will suggest starting to work on now if you're struggling with this is to work to choose to change your perspective. Usually this complaint comes from mothers who feel that their husband is not doing enough to work to pass on the faith to their kids. What if you chose to think of it as a compliment, you know, instead of my husband doesn't care if the kids grow up faithful. What about my husband trusts me to have the best idea of how to pass on the faith and he trusts me so implicitly that he doesn't see any need to interfere or control. Again, there's so much more to the subject, but I do suggest starting there. So the next one we're addressing is this claim that it's impossible to respect such a sinful man. God does not command us to do anything that even with his grace, we are actually incapable of accomplishing. If he commands us to respect our husbands no matter what, then it's not only possible, it's expected that we will endeavor to use the grace of the sacrament of matrimony to fulfill this command. We will come back to this in just a few minutes. The last subjection that we're addressing is, my husband is completely failing to lay down his life for me. Your husband is human, we've already said that. He's going to fail, we've already said that. With everything that we covered up until this point, I think it should be clear by now that this is not a valid objection. But I want to put objective failings in marriage into perspective. Okay, so in the simplest terms, right, the husband is commanded to lay down his life for his wife, and the wife is commanded to be respectfully obedient to her husband. The thing is, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, our spouse is not going to be there as our scapegoat. Your fulfilling what God has commanded of you is not contingent upon your husband fulfilling what is commanded of him. When he stands before God, he doesn't get to say, my wife failed to be respectfully obedient, so I didn't bother laying down my life for her. Well, the opposite is also true. We don't get to say, my husband failed to lay down his life for me, so I didn't bother being respectfully obedient. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. A man is still expected to lay down his life for a wife who is objectively horrendous to him. And a wife is still expected to be respectfully obedient of a man who is actively struggling with selfishness. We've addressed uh, five objections to respecting our husband. 
And now I want to address an objection actually to the sources I've presented for expounding on the church's teaching on respect and obedience, specifically those quotes from various popes that I just shared with you. The objection I received was, these popes are not speaking ex cathedra. Several things here. First of all, that only on two occasions have popes spoken ex cathedra once in 1854 and once in 1950, both regarding dogma concerning the Blessed Virgin Mary. So if you're going to dismiss what a pope says based on the fact that he's not speaking ex cathedra, well, I mean, you're just, you're just not going to have much to go on, are you? That Second, that this objection is a personal objection which is to say that this individual did not present passages from sacred scripture or from the catechism or canon law or any writings of saints or doctors of the church or other equally respected popes or bishops contradicting any of the quotes I've shared. Third, that in dismissing what any good pope has to say about anything is at best to call him a bad theologian. Worst case scenario, you're calling him a heretic. And yes, there have been heretical, objectively terrible popes, but the three popes I just quoted have not been shown to be problematic in the 60 plus years since the latest one passed, and that latest one being named Venerable. So again, at best calling a pope that you are dismissing a bad theologian, but you might as well be calling him a heretic if you're going to dismiss him at all. Because finally, this objection being, again, a thoroughly personal objection, what this individual is saying is basically that their formation of conscience, their experiential formation, their personal life experience, and their intellectual formation, their formal education specifically with regards to philosophy and theology, is superior to that of the supreme pontiffs whom they are dismissing. These statements made by these popes are not made lightly or flippantly. They were all made with the intention of having a life-changing impact on people, of bringing people closer to Christ and to heaven through these words. When you dismiss what a pope says, you are dismissing his conscience, his life experience, and his formal education in all things pertaining to the faith. He didn't get to be supreme pontiff for nothing. So I have to be very honest. An objection like this, that a pope is not to be heeded, because he's not speaking ex cathedra, is, well, we have to call a spade a spade. It's arrogant. It's foolish. And when put forward in an attempt to convince others to think the same, it's very, very dangerous. This is not a defensible position before the judgment seat of God. We are in future episodes going to be talking extensively about what respect looks like. Uh, wifely respect is not a subjective feel out what works for your marriage thing. Wifely respect can be clearly defined and a picture of what it looks like ideally 
clearly drawn. So we are going to spend time getting really nitpicky about respect and endeavoring to practice it perfectly in our marriage. But I want to spend the last part of this episode going back to that point about God not commanding us to do anything that is actually outside of our reach with his help. If he commands it with his grace, it can be done. When asked for the secret to holiness and sainthood, St. Thomas Aquinas gave a two-word response. He just said, will it? And I guess this is as good a time as any to share that these words from St. Thomas Aquinas are the inspiration for the title of this podcast. Striving to be a truly saintly wife with clear and detailed understanding of what God commands a wife and embracing God's wisdom in placing us in this uniquely challenging role demands an enormous strength of will. And yet, in his response, St. Thomas Aquinas captures the incredible truth that with the help of God's grace, we can have that strength of will. If God commands you to respect your husband, you can respect your husband. If God commands that you obey your husband, you can obey your husband. Sainthood doesn't just happen. It's not an accident or something we stumble into. It demands of us a disciplined self-awareness, followed by a tenacity of will to work to remedy the faults which our ever-deepening self-awareness reveals. In that first excerpt from an encyclical from Pope Leo XIII, he talks about being obedient to our husband not as a servant but as a companion. This has everything to do with how we form our consciences, how we choose to see respect and obedience in the context of our marriage. You can choose to see obedience as oppressive, and you can obey reluctantly or apathetically as a servant would. But you can also choose to look at your obedience to your husband as an opportunity to restore to him the dignity that Eve failed to commit to Adam. You can choose to say, we are in this together. I am not going to gain anything by kicking and screaming and biting and dragging my nails the whole way. This is an opportunity to strengthen my relationship with my spouse and thereby my relationship with Christ. There's this beautiful dialogue in Regina Doman's The Midnight Dancers. Uh, One character is retelling the story of the fall to another character in what he calls a, quote, fanciful fashion. He says of the devil that the devil, quote, desired to destroy the happiness of man and woman. So he created a twisted looking glass. This looking glass was not a mirror, but a piece of glass so invisible that a man could look through it and not realize he was seeing a twisted reality. And it reflected a bit like a mirror, so that a man could see himself or what he thought was himself. Now this glass was made particularly for men, and the devil made sure that men looked through it whenever they chanced to look at women. And this glass changed the women. It reduced them. So that to a man looking through the glass, the woman appeared to be an object, a pretty plaything for his pleasure. 
end quote. In the interest of discouraging our aspirations to sainthood, the devil wants us to believe that the fall added to Adam and Eve's existence, that they increased in knowledge, that they grew through the fall. But the truth is that Adam and Eve lost something. At the fall, they became less, not more. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that they quote knew they were that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons end quote but the thing is they weren't unaware of their nakedness prior to the fall rather they always knew that they were naked but it didn't matter what Adam and Eve lost at the fall was the ability to look at each other with purity of heart and of intent. Suddenly, because of the loss of their integrity, the nakedness in which they had always lived suddenly mattered in a miserable way. So miserable that it made them afraid to meet their creator. They cite it as the reason that they're hiding from him in verse 10. And in our particular experience as married persons, the sacrament of matrimony in a special way works towards restoring to us that purity of heart and intent with which Adam and Eve were created by giving us the opportunity to see our spouse, to see their person, to eliminate in us the twistedness that objectifies and to allow God to use us as his instrument to extend and restore to our spouse the dignity of being seen. My point being, when we aspire to sainthood, we are not aspiring to be an alien or to become some other sort of species. We are simply aspiring to be all that we were created to be. And I hope that you find that to be as cur- as encouraging as I do. Just seeking to be whole as I was intended to be, asking God to fill the cracks left by sin with his grace. And finally, embracing the words of the psalmist, that I am wondrously made. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.